Well, good morning again. Welcome to Missio. We're glad we are able to gather this morning on the day the Lord has provided for us to, to worship our God and our King. I want to take just a moment and specifically address the, um, the obvious thing, uh, the elephant in the room, the current uh, global crisis that is the coronavirus. And um, Nate, just a few moments ago, mentioned some announcements of things that uh, had been previously scheduled and um, just ask you to be on the alert for communications for us uh, throughout this week. Obviously, this is uh, a quickly evolving situation and uh, so we are going to uh, respond as we think wise and appropriate. Obviously, we are called to fear our God and we will do that. And we are called to love and care for our neighbor, and we will do that. And we are called to uh, submit to our governing authorities, and we will um, do that. So uh, everything uh, will be communicated uh, throughout this week as we keep an eye on that. I want to just say, like, if this, if this viral outbreak has uh, taught the world, taught us one thing, I, I think it's this. Um, life is not in our control, right? Um, we are not in control of our life. We do not by our efforts, by our ingenuity, by our preparation, by our determination, determine our, our well-being in any way. Um, life is out of our control. We are fragile and frail. We are finite, we are mortal, um, and, and this has always been the case. Not, nothing's changed this week, but the, the deception has been unmasked in, in many ways. And I want to just read from Ecclesiastes that makes this very point. It says, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And in many ways, this is an unsettling truth, right? That we, uh, life is out of our control. Life is unpredictable. But we must also pair that with a twin truth, that the triune God, the God of, of the scriptures, the God revealed in the person of Jesus is a sovereign God. And what I mean by that word sovereign is that there is not one little thing outside of the control of the creator king. Not one thing. No government, no army, no storm, no virus. Nothing is outside of his sovereign hand, outside of his control. Listen to Lamentations 3, verses 37 and 38. It says, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come so God is sovereign, and, and that might not necessarily be a comforting truth unless we also know that uh, we know about God's deep love 
for us as, as his frail, weak creatures. The, the scriptures call us to humbly come to him. 1 Peter 5 says this, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So he loves his people. He has compassion on us. He cares for us. And, and the truth is really this. We can face this pandemic not knowing the outcome of our own lives in the weeks ahead, not knowing the outcome for friends and family, for our parents, not knowing what will happen to them because of the truth that we proclaim every Resurrection Sunday, Christ is risen. We, we declare that on Resurrection Sunday, Christ is risen, and we say Christ is risen indeed. And that's not just a nice little slogan so we can give our kids Easter bunnies and, and, and have a great meal that afternoon. That is a truth upon which to base our lives. Christ is risen. And so what that means is death has lost its sting. Death has been relativized. And so this virus has been relativized. For those in Christ, death will not have the last word. The resurrection of Christ means that those who are united to him by faith will be resurrected on the last day. And death and this virus will simply be quiet. So our, our posture as a, as a church in, as the people of God in a time like this should not be panic, but, but trust. And that doesn't mean that, that you'll have no worrying thoughts that cross your mind. They'll come, I'm sure, as, as this thing progresses. What it does mean is what the psalmist says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. That's Psalm 56. When I am afraid... When I hear new stories of the virus, I will put my trust in you. It's an active leaning into God's sovereign care, moment by moment, new story by new story, government declaration by government declaration, leaning into and trusting in the Lord. And trust doesn't mean that we don't take precautions. By all means, uh, we need to take every precaution wise, and necessary. Hand sanitizer, yes. Social distancing, yes. But what that means is, as the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in isolation and some in hand sanitizer and some in the government plan and some in medical care, and those are wonderful things. We are blessed to have them, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And as we trust, I urge you to look outward. This is an incredible opportunity to love and care for those around us. Don't, don't simply be self-consumed. Seek out and be active in caring for those around you. Um, there are those in need. There are those who, uh, maybe because they're high risk, they're homebound. Drop off some groceries on their front porch. Uh, spare a square. Drop off a, a roll of toilet paper. Right? In, in, the, in the weeks and in the months ahead, uh, it seems inevitable that, 
that uh, the economy will take a downturn and people will lose their jobs. Let's, as a church body, as the people of God, share our resources and, and bear up one another and those around us as an expression of the love of Christ. This is an incredible opportunity that the Lord has granted us in his sovereign plan. And as we trust in and as we love, share the hope you have in Christ. Panic and anxiety are surrounding us. And in these inevitable conversations that we're going to have all week, proclaim God's sovereignty. Proclaim Christ's victory over our enemy, over death. Share the reason for the hope that is in you. So as the people of God, let us trust, let us love, and let us share. Would you pray with me? Sovereign Lord, you are the creator of heaven and earth. We are grateful to gather together and to celebrate and to remember and to meditate on that this morning. But this morning, we do seek you as frail, weak, dependent creatures. And at the same time, we declare by faith that there is nothing outside of your control. And so, God, as the one who controls all things, we ask for your mercy. We ask that you would be merciful in, in Wuhan, China. We ask that you would be merciful in Lombardy, Italy. We ask that you would be uh, merciful in the state of Washington. We ask that you would be merciful here in our state and in our community. We do ask that you would clothe our, our leaders in wisdom. You would, we pray that you would grant our, our medical professionals um, insight and skill. And God, as your church, we ask that you would grant us a clear and wonderful vision of your sovereignty, of your powerful hand. Still our worried hearts that we may know that you are God. Calm our anxious thoughts and clothe us, clothe your church around the globe with power by your spirit so that we may supernaturally and sacrificially love our neighbor and testify to the hope we have in our victorious and triumphant and risen King Jesus in whom we will live and reign forever. We pray these things in his name, in Jesus' strong name, our Savior, our Lord, our treasure. Amen. I want to um, introduce our uh, guest speaker this morning uh, and have Bill Thomas come forward. And as we do, I want to uh, just take a moment and as we do each week, pray, uh, have a special time of focused prayer. Come on up, Bill. Um, just stay at arm's distance away there, buddy. <laughs> um, we want to pray for um, the town of, of Dryden. 
Uh, Dryden is a town in Tompkins County, has about 14,000 people, uh, if you think on the map, between Cortland and, and Ithaca. And um, we are actively working with uh, several couples, about four couples who have come together around a common vision, a common passion to saturate Dryden with uh, gospel proclamation through the mobilization of Christ's people there. And uh, Bill is a part of leading that effort. And these families have been meeting and praying together for uh, quite a while now. Uh, I think we announced this uh, sometime back in the fall, and uh, they're likely going to begin to open their homes to, uh, to begin meeting in the next few months um, with the hope of establishing uh, a faithful gospel congregation uh, in and for that town and that geography. And um, Bill and Colleen Thomas, his wife Colleen, um, have been a part of uh, that core team and have been members here at Missio for a while. Uh, they've expressed an interest in seeing um, a congregation started there, and uh, so we want to pray with them uh, for the town of Dryden. So if you would, uh, let's pray. Father, we, we do come to you and we ask that, um, that you would receive the glory that you are due. Um, here in Syracuse uh, and in the surrounding counties, and we pray specifically for Tompkins County and for the town of Dryden. Uh, we know that you desire for your glory to be known by every man, woman, and child there. And so, Father, we pray that you would work in and through the couples that have begun to gather together to make your name famous that people uh, in our hopeless time would find hope. Uh, Father, we pray that you would grant them, uh, these couples, favor in that community, uh, that they would have open doors to love and proclaim your gospel, and that they would speak your gospel boldly and clearly as they ought. Father, as they plant and as they water, we do ask boldly that you would bring forth fruit, bring forth new life, bring some to life by your spirit, we pray. And now, Lord, as uh, Bill opens the word with us, uh, may your spirit prepare our hearts to receive for your honor and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bill. Thank you. Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you this morning, and as you know, we're going through the, the book of Psalms, and today is Psalm 23. No surprise, since we were in Psalm 22 last week. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 458, and we will pick up where the Spirit has left off in our teaching as of lately. Let me read that to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word now this morning. We are thankful that you are our good God and shepherd. So we ask now as we look at perhaps a familiar psalm that you would continue to open our hearts and minds and you would speak to us that it would not be my voice but yours which is heard through your word and by your spirit. And we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 23, also known as the Shepherd's Psalm, it's probably almost everybody's favorite psalm. Many of you, if not most of you, have probably memorized it at some point in your lives. Uh, you often hear it quoted in many different contexts. Sometimes you hear it quoted at a funeral, or you find it on a sympathy card because it mentions death, or at least the shadow of it. Augustine called it the martyr's hymn because so many Christians quoted Psalm 23 as they were being tortured and dying for their faith. G.W. Bush quoted it in his speech following the 2001 September 11th tragedy. It's indeed a psalm of comfort. And when we are in need, when we're insecure or feel fearful of death, uh, we also use it as a way to comfort others. We share this truth with those that we know. But yet really this psalm has far more to do with living life than it does with death. It's popular because we can relate to it in many ways. In fact, we need to relate to it just the way a sheep needs to relate to its shepherd. But keep in mind, knowing the psalm does not mean knowing the shepherd. We want you to know the shepherd today. Now, this psalm is like a beautiful scenic drive. If you were driving down a mountain, uh, mountain pass, you might want to look at everything which is there but you don't have time to stop and look at everything. So we're going to just pull over a couple of times, verses 2 and probably verse 4, where we'll take a longer look at what the psalm has to say. So uh, I'll drive and you look. Let's begin with point one, the possession of the shepherd. Verse 1 begins saying, the Lord is my shepherd. So this is a personal psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Here we see David, the shepherd boy, or maybe he's now a shepherd man as he writes this. He has spent hours, days, weeks, perhaps months and even years of his, his life watching and taking care of sheep. And now David, the shepherd, identifies himself as a sheep himself in relationship to his shepherd. I'm reminded of John 10 where Jesus describes himself as the good Shepherd In John 10, verse 11 and following, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Up until the writing of that passage, those who would read the scriptures would think of God as their shepherd, as the shepherd of Israel, and those who were leaders would be under shepherds 
under that great shepherd. So now as followers of Jesus, we can not only know God the Father as our Father, but we can know Jesus as the good shepherd and as our good shepherd. We like sheep can now say, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Because I am his and because he is mine, I shall not want. Now, if we think about verse 1 there where he says, I shall not want, the word in the, in the Hebrew really means I shall lack nothing. There's nothing that I really need that I would lack. I shall not want because I, I will not do without anything I truly need. I may have wants, like I want apple strudel, or I want winter to be over. I don't know if it is or not. Um, but these things are not needs. These are desires and wants, but not needs. The problem is we live in a society that feeds our discontentment. We're bombarded with offers of pleasure, offers of entertainment, distractions of all kinds, material goods, and it breeds a discontentment in our hearts. Now, you may have heard of Facebook depression. It means as I look at my Facebook, I go, I'm not eating food like that. My vacation doesn't look like that. And we kind of get this sadness about our own lives because we're comparing it to supposed friends of ours. It breeds a discontentment. And discontented sheep tend to wander. They wander away from the shepherd. They wander away from the flock. They wander because they do not trust that the shepherd is really providing for them and caring for them and will meet their needs. And personally, I think I've struggled a bit more lately with being content with God's timing and God's provision. Uh, I'm grateful for a construction job that I have. I'm even more grateful for the ministry I get to be engaged in and would love to do more and more of. Um, but I'm anxious to do it. Uh, I'm thankful for the ministry support that we have, but I kind of get tired of having to work at, at raising it. So there's a discontentment which comes when I look at something more that I think is out there for me. My discontent really shows that I need to learn to trust my shepherd even more. I often pray and remind myself lately, I shall not want because my shepherd who knows me, he knows each of us intimately, knows us intricately, is our shepherd. And the shepherd knows what I need. And he also has a plan to provide for that need so that I can say, I lack nothing. Now the question is, how does he do that? How does he provide for us? Going on in verses 2 in the beginning of 3, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. I don't know about you, when I read that passage, I envision a beautiful, lush green field and a winding stream, trickle, 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 just kind of making a soft, quiet sound by it. And it makes me want to lie down and take a nap. It sounds like a National Geographic bookstore. Um, not that I want to take a nap in the bookstore, but I would love to take a nap by that gently, um, gentle napping stream there. Uh, it's a place I'd love to do so, but however, I'm not very good at that. Uh, when I was in seminary, now I remind you I had seven kids at the time, which is not what you usually do when you have seminary. Um, I was in seminary and I was always tired and I was rarely took a nap. Raising the kids, I studied hard. I think I slept about five, six hours a night for, for three years. So generally, I was almost always tired physically, uh, often tired mentally. I was also tired spiritually. Um, when I studied, I had a hard time staying awake sometimes. 
So in one end of my garage is my desk, and the other end is my weight room. And so I'd often exercise while I was memorizing Greek and Hebrew things just to stay awake. Now, sometimes when I had to study, I'd take my flashcards, and I'd walk around the block for an hour just so I could study and stay awake at the same time. See, I figured if I took a rest, if I took a nap, I was not getting anything done. So I kept moving, convincing myself that I was doing what was most necessary and most needful at the time. I needed physical, mental, and spiritual rest, but as often as my wife tried, she could not make me lie down and take a rest, and she still can't. Um, My shepherd, he is the one who makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, when I first read that phrase, he makes me lie down, that's the word that sticks out to me. He makes me. And it causes this little thing to rise up like, you can't force me to do that. You can't make me lie down. It's kind of like a parent who tries to make his child sleep. It's like, time to go to bed. I'm not tired. I understand that, but you need to lie down and you need to go to sleep. And if you don't, we will both pay for it tomorrow. The parent, like the shepherd, knows the little sheep need to rest. So let's think about that. How can you make a bunch of sheep lie down? I mean, can you imagine the shepherd walking around his flock, pushing down on the back of number 27, and then number 84, and turns around, and number 99 is off somewhere, you know, not laying down where he's supposed to be. You can't make a bunch of sheep lie down. Or can you? Now, to be honest, I don't know that much about sheep. Um, I was raised in suburbia. Um, Raising seven kids is probably the closest thing I've come to trying to raise sheep. Uh, We do have a friend who does raise sheep, and once in a while we get to be the babysitters for his sheep when he goes away, and we tend to them a little bit, so I kind of watch and learn a bit about sheep. But most of what I've learned about sheep really comes from Psalm 23, from reading the scriptures, and a book that you may have heard of called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 written by a shepherd. Uh, In his book, uh, what's his name, Uh, Philip Keller, not Tim Keller, Philip Keller points out that a good shepherd makes it so his sheep can lie down. He can't really make them physically lie down, but he makes it so they can lie down. And he says this, the strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. And I'll mention them. I can't elaborate on them because of time. But this is what he says. First, because sheep are so timid and defenseless, they refuse to lie down unless they feel safe, unless they are free of all fear. Later in Psalm uh, 23, in verse 4, David says, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was a weapon-like club that the shepherd would use to defend the sheep. When the shepherd is in sight, the sheep feel safe and they can rest. Second, because sheep, like people, don't rest well when they're in conflict with one another, the shepherd provides for the sheep so they don't have to fight against each other for food or for water. He provides a a condition and an environment where they can rest and not be in conflict. Third, the shepherd, if, uh, if the sheep are tormented by flies or parasites, such distractions, the sheep will not lie down. But the good shepherd who is among the sheep, he knows when the sheep are being distressed by these distractions and tries to do something about it. And lastly, the sheep will not lie down as long as they feel the need to find food. When they are provided for by the good shepherd, 
then they can rest. So by the way he protects and provides for the sheep, the good shepherd creates an environment where his sheep can lie down and actually will lie down and rest. Next, my good shepherd pioneers my path. Where does the shepherd lead me? Verse 2, second part, it says he leads me beside still waters. Green pastures and still waters are really both metaphors for the same thing. It's a place of nourishment. It's a place of rest. The still waters, the Hebrew literally reads waters of rest. He leads me beside waters of rest. The psalmist here says the result of the shepherd's providing and leading is that he restores my soul. The word for soul could be translated a passion or perhaps my inner being. My passions and my inner being is restored by the Lord. The good care of the shepherd restores and refreshes like we read in Psalm 19.7. says God's word revives the soul. Have you ever experienced that? That the word of God has revived your soul? Have you ever been scared or overwhelmed or confused by your circumstances in a particular situation? But then you open God's word. And you read a little bit, and you pray a bit, maybe read some more, and you find that you feel different. And I think it's because we begin to see things differently. You know, when I'm worried and concerned about uh, situations or circumstances, I sit by our front picture window, which outlooks the road, and there's a big uh, hill out in the distance, and that's where the sun comes up. So I often will sit there, and I'll open up to Psalm 121, where it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, the very hills I see. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It gives me comfort and gives me perspective. See, the good shepherd knows us and he restores our soul when we feed on his provision, when we feed on his word and regain that perspective. Now, where else did the good shepherd lead us? Well, he leads us, it says, in paths of righteousness. Why? It's for his name's sake. See, how we live makes a difference. The way we live either honors or dishonors our God and our shepherd. Isaiah 52.5 tells us that um, God's name was despised and blasphemed among the nations because of the way Israel, God's children, God's sheep, were being disobedient in their way of living. The shepherd leads his sheep on the right path, and he does not go where the sheep want to go. He leads them, and if necessary, he drives them to where he wants them to be. He knows where there's green pasture. He knows where there's quiet waters of rest. He knows the path that will lead to that place of rest, even if those paths will be going through dark and scary places. When the seasons change and the good pastures are up in the hills on the other side of the dark valley, the shepherd knows he's going to have to lead his flock down through the dark valley to get them to that place of rest. It's his job to get them there. It's the sheep's job to follow him there. Once again, I'm reminded of John 10, verses 3 and 4, where Jesus, the good shepherd, said that his sheep know his voice and they follow him. And therefore, he leads them out. The only way you and I, the sheep, can discern the shepherd's voice is by being with the shepherd, by being with Jesus and listening to his voice and learning to recognize his voice among all the noise and things in our heads 
and in our hearts. Next, my good shepherd, we'll pull over here and look a bit longer at the view. My, my good shepherd is present in my circumstances. Look at verse 4 if you're not there at this moment. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, when we get to verse 4, the psalm shifts. It shifts from David talking um, about God the shepherd to now he's talking to God the shepherd, and it says, you are with me. And the tone also shifts here. Instead of talking about green pastures and quiet waters, now we're talking about a valley of the shadow of death. Now there's the mention of enemies being present. And even though the text says the shepherd is with me, we still have a sense of foreboding and that troubles are coming our way. Notice how verse 4 begins. It says, even though which can also be translated even when. See, David is saying even though or even when, not if, but when these times of dark valleys come, which tells us that the following valley is not some disconnected reality from the green pastures and quiet waters. This is part of the life of the sheep who is following the shepherd. But this is no ordinary valley. This is the valley of the shadow of death. It's not the valley of death, the valley of the shadow of death. Literally, it translates as death-like shadow or the valley of deep shadow, which is not death itself. There's the difference, but the shadow of it. And shadows are not the same thing as the reality of the thing. It's a distorted image of the thing. The thing actually exists, for the thing does cast a shadow, but the shadow is not the real thing. So the problem is for us as the sheep is that we don't see things from God's perspective. We see our circumstances with our own limited vision. Uh, we don't see far enough ahead and therefore we're scared and concerned. Uh, we often don't see any way out, which kind of makes us want to do things like buy 500 rolls of toilet paper just to control something. Um, when I can't see far enough ahead and I can't see how it's going to turn out, I, I, I get scared. And that's when the situation feels like death to me. It can feel like death on the inside, emotionally and spiritually, and even it may feel like I'm literally going to die in my circumstance. This shadow of death or death-like shadow could refer to a number of circumstances in our lives. Maybe you can identify with some of these. It could be the loss of your job. It could be failing an entrance exam could be getting cut from the team that you expected to have a career with, and now they're saying, no thanks, we don't need you. It could be um, the pain of a betrayal when a spouse has been unfaithful or perhaps walked out on you. It could be the pain of a broken relationship that makes you vow to never fall in love again. It could be the pain of a child who has walked away from the Lord and is giving you every indication that they maybe never really knew him to begin with. It could be a miscarriage of a baby that you have longed for. It could be the loss of a child at any age and for any reason that feels like death to you. It could be the death of someone that you've prayed for and don't understand why God did not answer with healing. And it could be just the emotional fog or depression that makes getting out of bed an actual victory for the day. See, the list is full of painful emotional situations that sometimes feel like death, but they're not necessarily death itself. 
Uh, Pastor Adam did a great job on Psalm 22. If you did not listen to that or weren't here the other week, please do that because it just fits so well with the valley of the shadow of death. He talked about struggle and worry and doubt that comes with suffering. And believe me, suffering will come if you're going to follow the shepherd. So David writes, even though, shepherd, you take me to and through such places, I will not fear, for you are with me, with me as I travel through the dark valley. And one thing to keep in mind, the valley is there by design. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you kind of wonder, how did I get here? How did I get in the circumstance where I am? What in the world am I doing here? I remember back in... um, this is in 96, our family had moved to Ukraine, and we lived there for 12 years and did ministry. But when we moved there, I remember being on the sidewalk, carrying our suitcases down to a different person's apartment for a while, and thinking, oh man, I bought a one-way ticket to Ukraine. I mean, I'm supposed to be here because the shepherd brought us here, but that sense of, how did I get here? I'm supposed to be here, the shepherd has led us here. And there were some dark valleys during that time that the shepherd has led us through. So the question is, how do the sheep wind up in a place such as the valley of the shadow of death? And notice David does not say that the shepherd leads them there, but he must be the one who leads them there because the shepherd does not follow the sheep unless he is driving them to the place where he knows they need to be. The sheep do not know if or that There will be green pastures and quiet waters of rest farther ahead. But their experience with the shepherd leads them to believe that there will be because he has provided for them and he has protected them. And thus they trust and follow their shepherd. See, it's very good for us to recall and to recount and even to write down uh, God's faithfulness. What has he done? And to continue to trust him as we look for more of that same faithfulness. And here's what I think is probably the most difficult and challenging thought for this psalm for us, or at least it is for me. The same shepherd, our sovereign God, that meets all the needs of the sheep so they can eat well and rest well and drink well, is the same shepherd of all providence that leads them into and through the dark valleys that feel like death. He is the shepherd of all providence that leads us into and through the dark valleys that feel like death. Think of the experience of Jesus himself, who interestingly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He turned to his heavenly Father, his shepherd, to seek strength to go through the dark valley that he was about to go through. He walked through quite the valley of the shadow of death, the agony of the cross, and the actual death on that cross But yet, he came through the valley, came out of the tomb, and is risen. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife and widow of a martyred missionary, Jim Elliot, says this, Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protecting from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. This was the proof of his love that he gave that son, that he let him go to Calvary's cross, though legions of angels might have rescued him. 
He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into the process. The process. Personally, I don't like process. I don't like road trips. I would rather be where I want to be. I'm like the kid who, and one of our kids did this, I won't name who, um, 15 minutes into an eight-hour trip, said, are we there yet? No, not yet. Don't ask me again for four hours. Um, I'm like that. I'm anxious to get to the result, but I don't like the process. But God uses the process. God uses the struggles in life to make us more like Jesus. So the shepherd will lead us through the dark valleys because that is part of the process. Going through it. The darkness does not have to devour us, but we keep our eyes on the shepherd. We walk by faith and not by sight, keep moving by God's amazing grace. We sing it. Think about this stanza. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Amazing grace. The shepherd does not take the sheep to places that he has not first determined are fit for the sheep. He has explored them and determined that they are appropriate. He leads them where he knows it will be good for them, even though they may not choose to go through the dark valley to get there. You know, as I thought about this, some of my sweetest times, I think, with the Lord have been at times when I have felt most alone or confused or discouraged or most vulnerable by my circumstances. And those are times that put me on my knees. Those are times I draw most near to the shepherd. And without the trials and troubles, I would know far less, I think, of the character and the care of the good shepherd himself. And lastly, let's look at the last couple of verses. Uh, my good shepherd pours overflowing grace, goodness, and mercy into my life. The psalm makes another shift here from talking about and identifying with sheep to now he's talking about a person, talking about people at a victory dinner. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So in the first, we see a table. You know, the table is a place where you eat food. And in the ancient Near East, having a meal with someone is an indication of acceptance. It's a sign of intimacy. This verse is also a picture of victory because it's a victory celebration. It's a meal in the presence of my enemies. It's not having dinner with your enemies. It's a meal perhaps with the POWs after the battle who are nearby in full sight, but yet you're enjoying the victory table with your comrades. David is grateful to be there, grateful to be alive, grateful to be in the shepherd's care. There's also an anointing of the psalmist's head, uh, a sign of honor and a sign of blessing or a sign of being set apart. Perhaps reminiscent for David of when uh, Samuel anointed him to be the future king of Israel. There's also a cup at this table, a cup which is symbolic of life, uh, but it's an overflowing cup. It doesn't mean someone wasn't paying attention. The overflowing cup is a symbol of abundance. It's a symbol of great blessing. He feels like his cup, his heart, and his life overflows. Uh, after our son Bo and his wife Hannah were married on New Year's Eve, uh, such a wonderful celebration of God's goodness, uh, that was the only way we could respond by saying, wow, our hearts are full. 
David ends the psalm with a grateful and hopeful full heart in verse 6. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, this is a statement which is born out of his experience with the good shepherd, based on his experience with the shepherd's care in the past. God's goodness and mercy follow me. It literally means it pursues me. You ever think of God's goodness and mercy pursuing after you, reminds you of how he found you. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, the good shepherd seeking and finding the one that has, that has wandered away, leaving the 99. David confidently assures himself and asserts he has an assured future with God in his house, with his shepherd forever. And I think that is our assurance as well, that if you know Jesus, if you know the good shepherd as your shepherd, you can say, he is my shepherd, then you too, like David ending this psalm, can say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Let's pray.